0: Do you know that game adults play with kids where they pretend like they don't know who the kid is? So let me show you, Uh, knock, knock, knock. Who's there? It's Timmy. Timmy who? It's Timmy, it's me, it's your grandson. I don't don't know any Timmy's, go away. Oh, Papa, you're so silly, that's how it goes. When I was eight years old, I thought that my grandmother was playing this game with me when I went to see her in the hospital. So I came in, she said, hi, who are you? I said, what's good grandma, it's your boy Sawyer. How are they treating you here? How's the food, you living well? She said, I'm I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know who you are. <laughs> good playing grandma, turn on the TV, let's watch Tony Hawk. And so I sat down and then it got weird. Grandma started playing this game with my mom, her daughter. She said, who are you? My mom said, it's, it's me. I'm your daughter. Then my uncle came in and he had to explain to Grandma that he was her son. And I'm off in the corner eating Grandma's jello and just thinking, wow, Grandma is committed to this game. It turns out Grandma had Alzheimer's. And my family had to go through this painful process regularly of reminding her who she was, where she was, and what her life was like. Have you had to do this before? Not. Alzheimer's, but if you had to remind someone of who they are, whether it's a friend who gets in a new relationship or they start hanging out with new people and they start acting a little bit differently, maybe you know someone who's come back from rehab and when they came home they relapsed. What do you say to people when this has happened? Now, what do you say? What do you say? There's three words that I have in mind. This is what you say. That's Not you. That's not you. That's not who you are. That's who you were, but you're not there anymore. Don't go back there. This is actually God's message for us today. That's not you. I'm a big picture guy. If you can explain the big picture of something to me, then the little pieces kind of fall into place a little bit better. And today in Romans, we're beginning chapter six. And chapter six marks a big picture change in focus from the previous five chapters of the book of Romans. So for the last five chapters, since January, we've been looking at this concept of justification, how God takes people who are in sin, in enmity, who are on their way towards death, and he takes them and he offers them new life, right standing with him, justification through his son. Not because of what we do, not because of how well we keep the rules, how well we obey the law, but because of faith in Jesus to be for us what we can't be for ourselves. Okay, this is a beautiful, amazing thing. Now in chapter six, he's examining this question of how now shall we live? What do we do now? And so Paul is turning this focus from justification, from being put into relationship with God, now to the topic of sanctification, walking with God, growing in Christ's likeness, becoming more like Jesus, growing in our holiness as believers. On a different note, some of you may remember the story of Exodus, how God delivered his people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. So God saw his people in their slavery and their oppression, and he sent Moses to deliver them. Moses led them through the Red Sea, they went to Mount Sinai and received the law, and then they wandered through the desert as God led them to the promised land. What most people don't recognize with this big shift in the book of Romans from chapter 6, chapters 6, 7, and 8 are going to be looking at this question of how now do we live as believers, but it parallels the story of Exodus. Just like we are brought through the waters of baptism, the people of Israel were brought through the Red Sea and delivered from their oppression, just like we're delivered from our slavery to sin. Then uh, chapter seven is looking at our relationship with what happened at Mount Sinai. How do we live now in relation to the law? And finally, chapter eight is looking at God bringing his people ultimately home, what we talked about in chapter 4, the new kingdom, inheritors of the promise. And why Paul does this, we're going to dig into later, but I just wanted you to keep that in mind as we begin chapter 6. So enough preamble, let's do that right now. Turn with me please to Romans chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 1. Now before we do this, I want you to remember what Brandon talked about last week. In chapter 5, Paul said this. In verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So where there's a lot of sin, there's got to be a lot of grace to come in there and cover it. I've got a lot of sin. It takes a lot of grace to cover that in my life as well. Now, here's the question that arises from it. If grace is a good thing and sin is an opportunity for God to show his grace, why don't we just keep on sinning? Crank up the, the, the sin because it gives, op- oh, I can't even talk. Let's try that again. Why don't we keep sinning all the more because it gives God an opportunity to show more of his grace. More sin is more grace and grace is a good thing. Let's crank it up. That's the question that happens right here in verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And this is the question that we're going to be answering today. If my works aren't what saves me, then why can't I do what I want? If it doesn't matter what I do, then why can't I do what I want? You said it doesn't matter what I do, and now you're saying it matters what I do. How do you reconcile these two things? When Christians meet grace, they sometimes do silly things. There's two broad types of mistakes that you can make. The first is no rules, which Paul is going to be addressing here, this response of, okay, because of God's grace, I can do whatever I want. And the other mistake is more rules. Some people think, ah, people are going to abuse God's grace. I'm going to put more rules around it. I'm going to add some extra fences to keep people safe from abusing God's grace. The first type of mistake, this no rules, it's actually called antinomianism. Nomos is Greek for rules or moral codes. So antinomianism is this view that the Christian is free and now they can live apart from any of God's commands for right living in the Christian life. A famous example of this is actually the mad monk Rasputin. He was in, he was a, an advisor to the Russian royal family right before the Bolshevik revolution. If you've seen the Disney movie Anastasia, you know who I'm talking about. But that is the mistake of no rules. The person who says no rules is the person who says, God can be my savior, but he can't be my Lord. He can give me a new life, but he can't tell me what to do with my life. He can give me freedom, but he can't tell me what to do with my freedom. And so this is the Christian who chooses to remain in sin, willingly, knowingly, and purposefully. And it's actually a contradiction in terms. Because this person says, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm not going to follow Jesus. You see the tension there. It's not tension. It's just a blatant contradiction. So that's mistake number one. Mistake number two is more rules. Some people see this abuse of grace and they get worried and think, I'm not going to let the people around me abuse God's grace. I'm going to put up extra rules, unnecessary rules, broad rules that sometimes throw the baby out with the bathwater. So let's, let's do something that will get me in trouble. But I, uh, I welcome it. What are some examples from your childhood? I'll share some from mine. Examples where perhaps it was well-meaning, but more rules putting rules around grace. I'll share a couple. I could go for a long time. Here's one. No secular music. No secular music. That'll keep the kids in the church. What defines secular? Um, It talks about Jesus. Okay, but if you listen to country music, it talks about Jesus and whiskey. So what do you do with that? That was checkmate number one, whenever that came up. Here's the second one that always came up. No bad movies. Okay, hey, what's a bad movie? Like low quality? Because then there goes all Christian movies. No, sorry, I mean, R-rated movies. Okay, what about The Passion? It's got Jesus in it. Uh, watch it with one eye open. Okay, okay, fine. What's another one? No dancing, hips don't lie. Okay, uh, what's another one? No pants on women. Why? Because it'll cause men to stumble if they see, they see you know too much of the legs, so the skirt must be below the knee, right? That one made no sense because if it's about modesty, Pants cover everything. It's 100% modest, but capris, a little scandalous. But what Paul is going to show us here in chapter 6 is that the response of faith to grace isn't no rules, it isn't more rules, but it's more relationship. The secret to Christian holiness is not less rules or more rules, but more Jesus. If you are walking with Jesus, you are walking away from sin. If you are walking in step with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is perfectly capable of keeping you out of sin and from abusing God's grace. If you only focus on the rules, you may be able to, you know, stay out of sin half effectively, but you'll miss out on the relationship. But if you focus on the relationship, you will be walking away from sin. So what we're going to see is that the primary motivation for Christian holiness is not fear of what God's going to do to me, but love because of what God has done for me. You will do more for love than you will for fear. You will do more for relationship than you will for rules. So let's continue reading on. Paul's response to this question is, by no means, how can we, who, I'm going to underline this, it's going to come back later, died to sin, still live in it. You died to sin, how can you still live in it? Do you not know? This is also going to be important. This is, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That was a bad line. Might walk in newness of life. So let's start with verse 3. It says that we who were baptized into Jesus, we who have associated with him, have been baptized into his death. Baptism, it literally means. To immerse, we who have been immersed into Jesus, we who trust in Him to be our righteousness, we who trust in Him to be for us what we cannot be for ourselves, we receive the same Spirit that empowered His life. And now we are baptized, immersed also into His death. So at Bayview Glen, we do full immersion baptism. And it signifies that when you go down, you share in the death of Christ. And when you come up, You share in his new life. Here's the quick takeaway from this. Because of our baptism into him, Christ's death is our death, and Christ's victory is our victory. So, baptism denotes two things. Let's make this quick and simple. One, it shows death, it signifies death. When Jesus died, your old life died. Some of you, I think all of us, have things in our past that we're really ashamed of. That's gone. There's things that I did that really burdened me. This is saying, those things are dead. It's in the past. It's gone. Don't go digging that up. Other people might try and dig that up, right? Sometimes bitterness can can be like a shovel and people will start digging around you. God's saying here, that's gone. It's no more. It's dead. He's saying to you today, I want you to be free from that condemnation. I want you not to be focusing on your past, but on your future. Don't be weighed down by your worst day. Look ahead for the good things that are yet to come. We don't take dead people to court. We don't lock people up and put them in the back of police vehicles. Cemeteries don't have floodlights and fences and canine units. Dead people are gone, no more in the past. And why do we die? Because baptism signifies something else. Baptism denotes cleansing. If we see here in verse 4, it says that we might walk in newness of life. This walk, walk is relationship language. We walk with Jesus. We walk with people when we're doing life with them. I'm married now. Got married uh, 10 days ago, 12. I got married and I love going on walks with my wife. I love going on walks with my dog. Not as much as my wife. Don't worry, baby. But... We're showing here that you get a new life. So whenever you wash something, when you wash your dishes, when you wash your car, when you wash your clothes, when you wash your cat, God be with you. I want you to remember that just like you're washing this item, Christ's death cleanses. You're clean. Many Christians remember that they're forgiven, but they forget that they're new. I don't feel clean. I still feel dirty, but that's just not true. I can prove it to you. First John, in First John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The enemy is the accuser of the children of God, accusing them day and night. Well, this is what you said, and this is what you did, and this is where you were, and this is who you are. Yeah, that guy's dead. He's not here anymore. Final proof text. If you look in Revelation 19, that at the wedding supper of the Lamb, the, the, the church will be presented to Jesus as a bride wearing white because she is pure. I'll give you some more proof text. Roman 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those, those in Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. So this truth of our old self's death, one, it should give us peace, but two, it should also give us power. Let's put this back in context of our original question. Why can't I do what I want? Because that person's dead. That person who was enslaved to sin, that person is gone now. That person is dead. So that's part one of our answer. And why did that old self have to die? Because we could walk in newness of life. Let's keep reading now. Verses 5 to 10. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, through the baptism, we just saw that, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that, this is the reason, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This no longer means we previously were. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we, be, uh, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. What's interesting is, if we look at verse five, for if we have been united, this united word, it's also used in chapter five. And if you look at the root of it, (laughs) pun, it's coming, get ready. It actually has its base in gardening language. It's talking about transferring something or grafting. For if we have been grafted into him with a a death like his, then we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If we want to use this language, he who abides in me, he who has been grafted into me will bear much fruit. So the Christian has been brought from one type of humanity and placed into another. So if you think of uh, where we were, grace came and met us there. Not to tell us that everything was okay, that we were fine, but to take us to somewhere better. So we are in a new type of humanity, and we should never make the mistake of thinking that we're still in Egypt. If you remember in chapter 5, Brandon spoke about this last week. There's two types of humanity, those who are in Adam and those who are in Jesus. Those who are in Adam are bound to be slaves to sin. Sin had its own solidarity, its own network of oppression, just like the people... In Egypt, God's people in there, slaves to Pharaoh, so we too were slaves to this old form of humanity. Now that self has died and we have been brought into a new type of humanity in Christ. As Paul explains in verse seven, for one who has died has been set free from sin. All right. Now, once we do this, does it leave us in no man's land? Are we kind of just stuck hanging out in the middle? No, we are brought into a new form of life, a new spiritual being even though we stay in the same body for now. So let's let's describe this uh, using an illustration that I heard from, this was from N.T. Wright. Imagine that you rent a home and your landlord is just a terrible person. They don't fix anything. They barge in when he or she isn't supposed to. They actually try and charge you for repairs that they should be doing themselves. They ask for rent early, and whenever you push back a little bit, they threaten you with eviction. Okay. Horrible. Then imagine that thankfully you move out, you move somewhere better. You move to a new place with a landlord. That's much more kind. They're friendly. They go above and beyond what they're supposed to. You see them just as much as you want to, not too much, not too little. So you're hanging out, enjoying an afternoon in this new place. And then your old landlord barges through the front door and they start making demands of you. You got to pay up. It's the end of the month. Where's my money? Give me that rent money right now what would you say to them? I'm sorry, I don't live there anymore. I live here now. I've moved on to a better place. I don't owe you anything. You can huff and puff all you want. I owe you nothing. So for the Christian who has been baptized into Christ's death and raised a new life with him, you are set free from sin and set free to God. Before you were with Jesus, let me give you an illustration. Before you were with Jesus, your face was towards sin and your back was towards God. But now that we are in him, we have turned, literally this is what repentance means, to turn now a new orientation of life with our back to sin and our face to Christ himself. So for the Christian right here, right now, you are not perfect, but you're being made new. Paul says later, not that I have obtained... No, he says... Sorry, that's a different quote. Paul says, He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So because Jesus lives, you live for Jesus. Because you've been changed, you can change. Because Jesus died for your sin, you can die to sin by the power of the Spirit. That's actually the whole focus of the next sermon. So tune in next week. You are not saved by good works. You are saved for good works. And let's see the big conclusion of all of this. I gave it its own slide. Verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's what's cool. This word consider right here. This is actually accounting language. It's doing a calculation to see what the remaining balance is. So here, Apostle Paul is not saying just to close your eyes and imagine yourself free of sin. Just speak it over yourself, speak it into the universe, speak it into existence. He says, no, do the math, do the calculation. If you have been baptized into Christ's death and raised with him, if you have received his new righteousness, his spirit, this empowerment, then calculate yourselves. You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Look what what does faith look like now, according to verse 11. Faith is not closing your eyes and hoping for the impossible. People talk about blind faith. Drives me nuts. That's a whole other sermon. But Paul's saying, open your eyes. Look at this reality that is true. Look at this new state of being that you find yourself in. And this is wonderful. But I don't always feel like it. Right? The sermon's done. The song's over. Driving home from the conference and I go back and life kind of feels like normal again. Right? If you've been a Christian for a long time and you kind of forget what life was prior to God's forgiveness and grace as well, we don't always feel like this. Paul is telling us to do the math. Consider yourself like this. Don't forget the truth of it. So we remember who we really are so that we can act accordingly. Remember who you are. That's the challenge of verse 11. So let's answer our question again from the start. Why can't I do what I want? Because I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a new person. I'm a new creation. I've been planted on new soil, blood soaked soil. I stand on resurrection ground. My life will bear that fruit no longer. I'm actually in the kingdom of heaven. I'm on a new turf. I serve a new Lord. I'm not a slave to that. I'm a child of the king, the resurrected savior. He gets to call the shots now. When you when you kill death, that's how things work. So we've been talking about this relationship now. Our lives... And grace, our new lives and this new standing that we have with Christ. Let me just give you four quick summary points for this broad concept. Let's remember this easily. What does grace do for you? Grace does at least four things. Here's four of them. Number one, grace forgives you. That was chapters one through five. We already looked at that. I'll I'll say no more. We receive right standing by grace through faith with God. Number two, grace changes your nature a heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. Sometimes this is talked about as regeneration, the regeneration of the believer. If you look at the word regeneration, generation has the same root as genesis, a regenesis, a recreation, a new humanity. Grace creates a new humanity those who are with the risen messiah. Grace also changes your desires. Now I desire what God wants. And slowly and surely, the things of this world, the sinful things, become less and less appealing. Those who are not in the Spirit have no appetite for it. Imagine speaking to someone who is not a Christian and saying to them, Hey man, do you want to stay abstinent till marriage, give 10% of your money to the church, stay sober, apologize when you're wrong? How does that sound? They would say, No. No, that that is exactly the opposite of what I want to do. I want to keep that 10% of money and live lavishly. So we are given new desires. Finally, God's grace gives us a new power. It's a power to say no to sin and yes to God. So we still wrestle with sin, but we aren't enslaved by it. To answer the question from the beginning, why can't I do what I want? The answer is, that's not me anymore. Paul's saying, that's not you anymore. For two reasons, as we saw, your old self is dead and you have a new life in Christ. So you need to remember this. If you look at the beginning of the chapter, it says, don't you know? This is knowledge language. This is something that we need to remember. Humans are story creatures. We are self-understanding creatures. How we understand and our, and pardon me, how we understand ourselves and the world around us influences how we walk through it. Right thinking influences right living. And living in accordance with the change of status requires one, that we recognize it, and two, this is what we're looking at the next two weeks, that we take steps to bring our lives into line with the person that we have become. So for us, for we, the Christian stands on resurrection ground. We are part of a new kingdom. If you remember my story from the beginning, I talked about my grandmother and how we had to tell her, This is who you are, this is where you live, this is where you're from. And imagine hearing this imagine us telling her, Hey, Grandma, this is us, we're your family. She says, You mean I'm I'm not alone? I, I woke up and I'm alone in this hospital room. And we tell her, No, you're not alone, you're part of a family this place is not your home you've got a farm it's beautiful there's a barn and horses and chickens and a garden you don't have to eat the food here there's a big table and we get together on on sunday nights and have a wonderful dinner your life is fantastic this here right now this is not you and this is what the body of christ does we remind each other when we're stepping out when we're returning back to this old way we tell each other that's not you That's not you anymore. So the question is, are we living like this? Are we viewing each other not as finished products, but as works in progress? Are we speaking life? Are we reminding people of this good news? Or are we speaking condemnation over them? Are we reminding them of who they were, of that person who was dead church? This is an awesome truth.